That's when death was arrested, the morning that Jesus stood up in that tomb. We're going to look at a piece of that story this morning in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. It's actually something that happens just after Jesus has resurrected. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you. Uh, thank you for the resurrection of your son. Thank you for the gloriously good news of Easter. God, thank you for Jesus hanging on the cross, Lord, where he bore our sin and our shame, where he took the punishment that we deserved in our place. God, but we praise you that that was not the end of the story. God, that on the third day he rose triumphantly and not only did he take our sin and shame to the cross, Lord, he put death in a grave. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that, Lord. We just want to spend time this morning uh, soaking in the truth of that, rejoicing in all that that means for us, God, and seeing the hope that comes with the power of the resurrection. And so, Lord, would, would your Holy Spirit just use this time, open our eyes to the truth of your word, help us to relish and cling to the truth of the resurrection this morning, God, but also help us to be Christians who cling to that truth every day. Uh, like Paul said, if the resurrection did not happen, then we are to be pitied more than all people, God, but it did. And so because of that, we rejoice and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, I joined a team of emergency medical professionals and we went down to Haiti in order to do some emergency medicine there for people who had been injured and impacted by that earthquake. Um, I went down as a, as a translator. I was really just kind of an accessory to the trip. But I can remember being there and on two different occasions while we were in the country, there was an aftershock to the earthquake. Now, a little bit about earthquakes and aftershocks. Obviously, the main uh, stress in a fault line takes place during the primary earthquake event. And then what happens on the backside of that is that there are often smaller quakes that happen. That's because there's still tension in that fault line and things are settling. And so we felt two of those aftershocks, brief, small, but we felt them Nonetheless, they pale in comparison to the primary earthquake, to the major shock that takes place. Yet, they're still frightening, and those aftershocks still have impact. Always smaller than the initial earthquake, a sign that there's still some stress, but real nonetheless. On the night that Jesus was crucified, we're told that there was an earthquake. The ground shook, the veil in the temple tore into. There was a physical earthquake. On the morning that Jesus resurrected from the tomb, there was this sort of spiritual seismic activity. And it wasn't that two tectonic plates were rubbing against one another, causing the ground to shake. It's that heaven and earth collided in a way that had never happened before and never needs to happen again. It was all of a sudden possible for humanity to stand triumphantly covered by the blood of Jesus Christ in the presence of the Father. That is a major earthquake, if you will. 
What we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 20 is an aftershock to that. It involves a story that primarily focuses on Mary Magdalene and what happens after she's run to the, or she's gone to the tomb in the morning, run back, told the apostles about it. They've run to the tomb and seen that it was empty. And then there's this account that takes place between Mary and Jesus. That's what I want us to see this morning. Let me set a little bit of the context. Jesus is crucified on Good Friday. The trial is long and weighty. The disciples are scared and confused. The end of the whole thing is tragic and devastating as they watch Jesus hang on the cross. He is beaten, bloody, dead, and buried, and the earth is literally reacting. Like I said, there was an earthquake. The sky darkened. Uh, Jesus goes from being treated like a sacrificial lamb there on the cross. And then in this sort of odd turn of events, immediately following his death, his body is treated uh, almost like royalty, carried and placed in a tomb that he did not purchase, um, taken care of, sort of an odd turn of events after what's just taken place on the cross. And while his body is laying in the tomb, sealed with a heavy stone, guarded by Roman, Roman soldiers. The, the disciples are in this kind of stupor. They're stunned by what they've just seen. Early on the morning of the third day, Mary Magdalene, as well as some other women, go to the tomb with these spices to anoint the body of Jesus. When they get there, the Gospel of Matthew says that there was an earthquake when an angel appeared and rolled the stone away. One comment there. There's been a lot of shifting that's taken place for all of humanity in the events of this three-day window. This is the major event in all of human history. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross through the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the tomb is the most significant thing that's ever happened in all of the universe's existence. Everything around it, before and after it, pales in comparison. Old Testament kind of foreshocks to this massive spiritually seismic event that takes place on the cross and out of the tomb and then everything that takes place after it are aftershocks. Mary, or the Gospel of Mark, Luke, and John, they just report that when Mary arrives, the stone has been rolled away and the body of Jesus is not present. He's resurrected. The words of Josh Redberg here about the resurrection have always been uh, incredibly poignant to me. He describes it this way, that Jesus, with a gaze full of love and grace, stared into death's cold, cruel eyes and with infinite power, delivered its ultimate defeat. Here's what's interesting to me about this story of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. I think most of us think that when Mary peeked inside that tomb that morning, saw that the body of Jesus was gone and ran back to tell the apostles that she went back to tell them that Jesus had resurrected. That's actually not what's taken place. She does not yet realize that Jesus on the inside of that tomb with a 
gaze full of love and grace, stared into death's cold, cruel eyes and delivered its ultimate defeat. She doesn't know that yet. When she's asked, why are you looking for the living among the dead? She doesn't know that Jesus is living. See, he's not present there because he's alive. Mary just knows that the body is gone. And so she runs back to tell the apostles what has happened. And they run to the tomb and see that it is indeed empty. And they don't yet know that it's because Jesus has been resurrected. All they know is that the body is gone. Then John records the following interaction. Now, what we're about to read here is obviously about Jesus, but it's about Jesus through the eyes of Mary. Mary, who is very confused. This is what John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18 says. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. We announced late last week that part of what we want to do during this season is just simplify what it looks like to follow Jesus in the middle of what are complicated and confusing circumstances. We're trying to pare things down and make life simple and following Jesus simple. And so we did this on Good Friday. I want to do it again this morning. If you've got your kids there and maybe there's a Jesus Storybook Bible nearby, I'm going to read a section out of this. Now, Sally Lloyd-Jones and her publishing company have made it possible for us to use this. We're very grateful for that. And so I'm going to read just a chunk of this, because the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones captures the resurrection of Jesus is simple. It's also beautiful. Here's what she says. Jesus's friends were sad. They would never see their best friend again. How could this happen? Wasn't Jesus the rescuer, the king God had promised? It wasn't supposed to end like this. Yes, but whoever said anything about the end? Just before sunrise on the third day, God sent an earthquake and an angel from heaven When the guards saw the angel, they fell down with fright. The angel rolled the huge stone away, sat on top of it, and waited. And at the first glimmer of dawn, Mary Magdalene and other women headed to the tomb to wash Jesus' body. The early morning sun slanted through the ancient olive trees, drops of dew glittering on leaves and grasses like little tears everywhere. The friends walked quietly along the hilly path through the olive groves until they reached the tomb and immediately noticed something odd. It was wide open. They peered through the opening into the dark tomb, but wait, Jesus' body was gone, and something else, a shining man was there, with clothes made from lightning. Don't be scared, the angel said, but they couldn't help it. 
They screamed anyway. The angel asked them, what are you doing here? This is a tomb and tombs are for dead people. And the woman, women couldn't speak anymore. Jesus isn't dead anymore, he said. He's alive again. And their hearts leapt and the angel laughed with such gladness that they felt for a moment as if they had awoken from a nightmare. The other women rushed home, but Mary stayed behind. How could it be true? Jesus was definitely dead. How could he be alive? Just then, Mary heard someone else in the garden. Perhaps it's the gardener, she thought. He'll know where Jesus' body is. I don't know where Jesus is, Mary said urgently. I can't find him. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was, and he had found her. Mary. Only one person said her name like that. She could hear her heart thumping. She turned around. She could just make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see and thought she was dreaming, but she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing. Jesus. Mary fell to the ground. Sudden tears filled her eyes and great sobs shook her whole body. And all she wanted in that moment was to cling to Jesus and never let him go. You'll be able to hold on to me later, Mary, Jesus said, and always be close to me. But now go and tell the others that I am alive. That is a condensing of all four Gospels. What we have in the Gospel of John, though, is Mary showing up to anoint Jesus' body, seeing that the tomb is empty, going and telling the apostles that Jesus' body is gone, coming back with them, and then standing outside the tomb crying. Here's what we're going to see this morning. That in Jesus, God turns devastating ends into beautiful beginnings. Other than the basic words or articles that take place in this passage of scripture, the most commonly used word in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18, is about Mary's emotional state. She is devastated and she's crying. In fact, that word is used four different times, really on three different occasions. Once it comes from the narrator, that's in verse 11. Once it comes from the angels, that's in verse 13. And once it comes from Jesus himself, that's in verse 15. The life of Jesus came to a devastating end. And now, like kicking Mary and the disciples while they're down, not only is Jesus dead, but his body is gone. Mary's in such disbelief about it that she looks back into the tomb a second time just to make sure that her eyes aren't deceiving her. And when she looks back in, what she sees are two angels. Why are you crying? Well, because this wasn't how it was supposed to end. They've taken away my Lord, Mary says. And there's a lot in that. They took him away on the cross the very first time, a blow that was difficult to deal with for Mary and all of Jesus' followers. Now to add insult to injury, they've taken away his body. And we're not told whether or not the angels say any more at that point, just that Mary turns around because she can't look into the tomb any longer. And when she does, a man speaks to her. Verse 14, the language here is incredible. And the CSB that I amusing. It says, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Literally, that translates, she turned around and is seeing Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was him. In English, the verb tenses make that clunky. 
So they translate it the way that they do. But you're supposed to feel the irony. In her grief about Jesus being taken away, she turns around because she can't stomach looking into the tomb any longer, and she looks Jesus dead in the face and doesn't know that it's him. That's because grief is often cloudy. It makes it difficult to see. And so Jesus asks her the same thing the angels did. Woman, why are you crying? And Mary just cuts to the chase. Look, if you're the gardener, maybe you know what they've done with his body. Tell me where it is and I will take it away. To which Jesus standing there probably thought to himself, yeah, I know a little bit about where that particular body is. Instead, he simply says her name. Mary. And as Jesus said earlier during his ministry, his sheep, know his voice. And when Mary hears her name on the lips of Jesus, she realizes who she's talking to. And that changes everything. We'll talk about that in a second. Let me pause here because I think this story has a lot to say to us. Grief comes in a number of shapes and forms. In fact, let me make that even more specific. I think grief right now in this season comes in a lot of shapes and forms. Part of that grief is that I would rather be having this worship service with you physically right now. You would rather be in this sanctuary singing, that's when Jesus arose with my freedom in hand alongside like a few hundred of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a grief associated with that loss. We can grieve the loss of a loved one. We can grieve the loss of someone we may not even have been all that close to, but their loss still hurts. We can grieve the loss of relationships or the loss of an opportunity. I think of my uh, friends and those in this congregation who are seniors or they have seniors in high school who just recently found out that Their senior year ended on the day before spring break when they walked out of that building and had no idea that they would walk back in as students again. There's a grief associated with that. There's a grief associated to our students who found out that Camp Barnabas isn't going to be having camp over the summer in a place that our student ministry really loves. We're not gonna get to go to. That's grief. It's grieving the loss of an opportunity. We can grieve the ending of a season of life. We can grieve the loss of a job. We can grieve the loss of a circumstance or situation that we didn't even know that we really cherished until it was taken from us. A lot of us didn't know that we really, really loved that Saturday coffee date that we have with someone until all of a sudden it's not possible to go and have coffee anymore. Maybe we complained about long days at the baseball fields or early mornings at a soccer game or the trips back and forth from piano lessons and all of a sudden those are ripped away from us and grief hurts and it makes things cloudy. It can be a little bit hard to see in the middle of our grief physically because the tears make our eyes a little bit blurry, but also spiritually because grief can make things cloudy in our hearts. What we find ourselves in right now is a massive nationwide, citywide, churchwide season of grief. And there are innumerable facets to that. Men and women losing their jobs. Families facing the reality of sickness and death people dying 
and in most places, the inability to even gather to grieve that death. Seniors in high school or college missing out on what should have been a fun and exciting finish to a season of life. Churches not meeting in person to celebrate Easter. We can and are grieving all of these things as well as a host of others. And all at the same time, we're unable to actually be present and comfort one another. It feels like one devastating end after another, piled up on top of each other with no end of sight. And so here we stand, a little bit like Mary, overwhelmed by grief. You've maybe even shed tears over some aspect of that at some point in the last three weeks. We're looking around, trying to figure out exactly what they've done with our Lord. Where is he? Where's he gone? We're trying to figure out why this all feels kind of empty. And I'd be willing to bet that there's been more than one moment when we've looked dead into the eyes of our Lord and what he's doing in this season and said something akin to, do you know where God is? Do you know where Jesus is? To which God probably thought to himself, yes, I know a little bit about where I am right now. Devastating ends hurt and grief is cloudy. But watch what happens here. Jesus says Mary's name. And we're told in the middle of verse 16, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now, if you've tracked with the story. She already, she already turned around once. She was looking into the tomb. There were two angels there. They asked her why she was crying. She asked what they had done with her Lord. We don't get any response. She turns around. She looks into Jesus's face, doesn't recognize that it's him, thinks he's the gardener, asks where the body is. Jesus then says her name, and it tells us that she turns around again. Here's what I think is happening. She turns around to see, Jesus, and to see Jesus and thinks that he's the gardener. He says her name and Mary realizes who it is. And now she's doing that thing that you do uh, when you're around two people who are having a very heated discussion and you're looking from one to the other as they fire back and forth at one another. What do they say? What do they say? What do they say? Only the heated discussion is happening in her own heart and in her own mind. She's looking back and forth between an empty tomb and a risen Lord. She's looking back and forth between a devastating end, Jesus's body buried in that tomb and a beautiful beginning, a resurrected Lord. And as she fights the whiplash of that back and forth, she realizes that the cosmic earthquake of Jesus's resurrection is the real deal. And all she can squeak out in response is, Rabbani, teacher, you see, grief, her grief, is remedied by grace. The grace of the resurrection. The grace of Jesus standing in front of her. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, you didn't know where I was, but I knew where you were, and I found you. That is grace. This does not mean that the reality of the resurrection has done away with grief. No, so long as we're here in this broken world, there will be no shortage of grief. That's part of the human experience in a sin-stained world. But here's what that does mean. There will always be enough grace to sustain us in our grief. Right now, in this large group grief experience, there is grace that meets our grief. Didn't get to have that senior finish. 
there's grace for that. Didn't get to celebrate the way you wanted, whether that's a wedding or a birthday or a retirement or a funeral. There's grace for that. Lost an opportunity or had a season of life close, there's grace to meet you in the middle of that grief. And the grace of God comes sweeping into the middle of our seasons of grief and helps us to see clearly. You may be looking back and forth right now between a devastating end and the beginning of what the Lord is doing. And it starts with a recognition of the grace of God to be present with you in your, gr- in your grief. That's a gift. And know this, if God has already done the earth-shaking work of resurrecting the son, which he has, then making a beautiful beginning out of what feels like a devastating end in your life is but an aftershock. If he could raise Jesus from the dead, he can bring grace into the middle of your grief. Here's the other thing that that means. There will come a day where grace will swallow grief entirely. We're told that Jesus will wipe every tear from every eye. We're told that sin and brokenness will be no more. And where there's no sin and there's no brokenness, brothers and sisters, there's nothing to grieve. All the painful realities of life will be gone and replaced with the endless joy of eternity with the Father. Mary must go in for a hug or something, or she falls to her knees and grabs onto like the legs or the feet of Jesus because he says, don't cling to me. Look, Jesus' body has been the big thing for Mary throughout this entire conversation. It was his missing body that had her in tears. It was knowing that his living body was standing in front of her that has her overjoyed that a devastating end has become a beautiful beginning. And so why does Jesus say, don't cling to me? Well, because he's going to ascend to the Father and our faith in Jesus will not be a matter of physically clinging to his living body, but of spiritually clinging to his sinless, crucified, resurrected and ascended life. That's what we cling to. And then watch what he tells her. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father. He says, Go and tell my brothers. That's the only time in all the gospel accounts that Jesus refers to the disciples as my brothers, possessive. It happens after the resurrection. He also says that he's going to ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. In the gospel of John, Jesus uses the word father 109 times. 71 times, he says the father. 27 times, he says my father. And one time, he says your father. It's right here after the resurrection. Because that earthquake, that spiritual seismic event has shifted some things. And one of the aftershocks is that the friends and followers of Jesus become the father's family. Everything has changed. And out of the devastation of the cross comes the beauty of something brand new. And that means that those who are saved by grace are adopted into the father's family. What does this mean exactly? That means that those who are saved have a perfect heavenly father. One that we can trust is working for our ultimate good, even when it feels like a devastating end in our life has brought pain, confusion, and uncertainty. We can trust that our Father, your Father in heaven, 
is working for your ultimate good. So Mary runs back to the disciples and what does she say? I love the way she says this. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Not I found his body, I know where they put it. No, she says, I have seen the Lord. Grief is no longer clouding her vision because it's been remedied by grace. A gap has been closed because Jesus's friends and followers are now brought into the father's family and searching for Jesus has now turned into sharing about Jesus. That's the last point here. One of the things that happens when God When in Jesus, God makes a devastating end into a beautiful beginning is that our searching becomes sharing. Brothers and sisters, we've seen the resurrected Lord. We ought to be running like Mary and proclaiming, I've seen the Lord. I see what he's doing in this season. He had grace to meet me in my grief. I had trust that my father had something good here and I've seen the Lord and I wanna share about it. In this season, we can watch while his grace meets our grief. We can rejoice that our father has swept us into his family and loves us perfectly and completely. And because of that, we can share about his grace and his goodness. Jesus has created a beautiful beginning out of a devastating end. Mary sees it clearly and she's ready to tell the whole world. He's done the same for us. He's done the same for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's doing the same for us even in this season. And if he could do it by raising Jesus from the dead, we can be absolutely certain that this aftershock is something that he can take care of. And so we share. We share about the grace of the Lord Jesus meeting our grief. We share about how the Father has adopted us into his family and how perfect our heavenly Father is. We share about the way he's meeting us in this place. And ultimately, we share the good news of the forgiveness of sin because of the death of Jesus Christ and the defeat of death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to close by going back to the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones said this in the Jesus Storybook Storybook Bible. The very beginning, she said this, Jesus' friends were sad. They would never see their best friend again. How could this happen? Wasn't Jesus the rescuer, the king God had promised? It wasn't supposed to end like this. And then she says this, yes, but who said anything about the end? Jesus has done the major universe-quaking work of the cross and the resurrection. And I want to assure you, and I pray the Holy Spirit would assure you in this season and any other one that the Lord brings us into in this life, he can handle the small tremor of making all of our devastating ends into beautiful beginnings. Those are small matters to a death-defeating Savior. In fact, even the worst end that life in a broken world can deal to us, our physical death, is but the beginning of something infinitely, eternally beautiful. And that will be life eternal in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
in an eternal new heaven and new earth where there need not be a light or the sun because the radiance of the beauty of Jesus, the son of God, illuminates everything for us. Jesus is risen. And in Jesus, God turns devastating ends into beautiful beginnings.